Hello and welcome to the Media and Marketing Podcast sponsored by MWW. Today we've got another great podcast. Later in the show I'm joined by Stephen Woodford, the Chief Executive of the Advertising Association, who offers insight into why he thinks the status quo of freedom of movement between the EU and the UK could well continue and the ramifications for the advertising industry. But before that, I'm joined by two executives from two key trade marketing bodies. So delighted to be joined by Leela Travis, who is the head of planning at Thinkbox, the marketing body for commercial TV, and Mark Barber, planning director at Radio Centre, the marketing body for commercial radio. Uh, we're also happy to be joined by Vanessa, Vanessa Clifford, the chief executive of Newsworks, which represents the newspaper industry. But sadly, for family reasons, she can't be with us today, so we wish her well. Now, we've got loads to get through. First of all, can I just turn to you, Lena? Can I just get a potted history of your career today, please? Yeah, sure. So I started uh, my media career at Starcom, a global network. I controversially moved from the digital team um, to the television team. Uh, everyone thought I was a little bit crazy. Um, and um, then um, from there, I worked at another global uh, network, MEC, yep. um, which has obviously now changed to Wavemaker, I believe. And then I went to Total Media, an independent media agency, and was head of television there. And I've been at Thinkbox now for the last five years as head of planning. Okay, and, and same question for you, Mark. Okay, uh, so I started off on the media agency side as well. Uh, did 18 years, uh, mainly on the strategic planning side of things, uh, most recently at Universal McCann. Um, I'm one of those sort of old school planner buyers who <laughs> plan and bought every single medium, um, uh, which you don't find very often these days. Uh, and I've been at uh, Radio Centre, actually it was the RAB that I joined, which has yeah. since been uh, 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 subsumed into the Radio Centre brand. Uh, I joined in 2001, so I've been there 16 years. 16 years, right, indeed. Okay, now we've got loads to get through today. Uh, this week, uh, execs from Facebook and Google were quizzed by MPs and also in the House of Lords on a variety of issues, including safety of their platforms. So let's start with that. This has been one, one of the big subjects of the year. Uh, year. So Google owned YouTube, Facebook, and to a lesser extent Twitter have had brand safety issues this year whether it be brands appearing next to violent, terror-related, terror or other unseemly content. Um, starting with you, Mark, do you think that, um, well, let's talk about YouTube as soon as they've taken the brunt of it. Do you think they've got a handle of this uh, brand safety issue or not? Uh, well, I think they clearly made some, uh, some efforts to address advertisers' concerns. Have they got a total handle on it yet? Um, probably not. Uh, you know, they, they said again yesterday that the issue is the amount of content that's being uploaded makes it impossible for it to be uh, edited by a human. Um, and so the only way they can realistically manage it is, uh, is through algorithms. And I think the problem with algorithms is they, there will always be a way around them. You know, mm. they, can, they can't be 100% foolproof all of the time. Uh, which I think also raises a sort of broader question, which is, are we, as a, are we happy as a society uh, for computers to decide what it is and isn't appropriate sure. for us to view? Okay, yeah. And what about you, Lula? Have you seen any, I mean, in terms of the TV industry, have you seen brands ever more concerned about, you know, what's happened on YouTube? Is this sort of transposed to TV? Are brands concerned about um, ads appearing in TV near to um, unseemly content or not? Well, I think we're in a very fortunate um, position I mean, in TV and, and in radio. That we, you know, we are tightly regulated. Yeah. Um, so we don't have that problem. And advertisers can choose where their, their ads are aired. Yeah. Um, so we're not seeing that problem, but 
obviously, um, with all these brand safety issues, the, the whole industry has been under scrutiny, yeah. um, and it's very much front of mind. But arguably, it's put us in an even stronger position because, you know, we are, you know, working in an industry that is tightly regulated, um, and, you know, both TV and radio actually are the most trusted um, mediums for for viewers and and as I say for advertisers as well. Okay, I think sorry. Can I? Turn yeah, I think um, uh, you know, not is it just the content that's regulated? The ads are completely yes. regulated on TV and radio as well. So all the scripts are pre-cleared before they go to air to ensure that they conform to uh, the BCAP code to to ensure that they are clear and not misleading. Mm -hmm. So you know you can trust the content and you can trust the ads that you're appearing if you're an advertiser. And have you seen a bounce at all? Have you seen or heard anecdotally about advertisers wanting to switch away from digital programmatic to move across to radio and TV because of concerns? Well, I think there has been some effect there, and maybe that has helped contribute to radio's 4% rise in revenue this year. Maybe it's been one factor in that. Uh, but I don't think we should kid ourselves. You know, if you look at Google, Facebook revenue, it's continued yeah. to rise massively across this year. They dominate the overall media industry, not just the digital sector and probably like to continue to do so in the future. So it doesn't seem to have had a fundamental effect as yet. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I think, I think we, have, we have seen that sort of pendulum swing a little bit, um, yeah. particularly over the last few months. I don't know if that's purely down to brand safety issues, um, but um, what we are seeing, um, and thanks to all the amazing work that the likes of Les and Peter um, do with the IPA, right. um, you know, what they've sort of proven is that marketing is in a bit of a crisis at the moment because of um, short-termism. Yeah. So what we're seeing now is, um, you know, that's been recognised and now marketers um, are sort of under pressure to not yeah. just keep focusing on short-term but also okay. think about long-term brand building. So we are seeing the pendulum swing but maybe um, not just because of brand safety issues. I think yeah. that's probably a factor. Okay. And just, just a final point on this, obviously YouTube, Facebook, Twitter have taken a kick in on this. How much responsibility lies with the, the, media, uh, the media agency and the advertisers themselves? Should they you know, be more concerned about where their ads are going? Should they up their game too, do you think, Mark? Uh, well, um, you know, when I was on the media agency side, I, I always considered it my responsibility to ensure that the ads appeared in the right place. Uh, and, uh, so that's not just the medium overall, the right context, uh, sure. also at the right time uh, to ensure you're reaching the right people. Um, so I think there is uh, an element of responsibility on uh, the agency to deliver that and I guess the advertiser to police their agencies and ensure that they are briefed to ensure that they uh, appear in those sort of environments. But I also think there's a responsibility on Facebook, Google, Twitter, et al. Uh, to ensure that uh, you know, the content that they place ads in is safe, uh, is legal, um, because if you're making money from that content, mm. you should be responsible for ensuring that it conforms to uh, societal expectations and legalities. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So, so the nub of the, uh, I guess, the issue is is whether uh, Facebook, in particular, should be seen as a, a technology or a media company. I think yesterday there seemed to be inferring that there's some way of a halfway house. I mean, do you have a view? Do you think there should be? I mean, the culture secretary has basically said that it should be liable to pay, uh, forced to pay a levy for things like, you know, cyberbullying, abuse, and underage access to porn on the platform. Do you, do you agree with that, Lila? 
I'll put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you have anything well, to, to comment on that. I mean, um, well, I, I just reiterate my my point, which is, if you're making money out of it, yeah, you should be responsible for ensuring that it it, it okay. conforms to you know regulations that other media owners yeah. are expected to conform to. And I think from our side, you know, Facebook. Um, are moving into the TV space, sure, yeah. and so you know we would expect if you're if you're calling it TV, you're creating content. We would expect it to be regulated in exactly the same way. Okay. And I think just as a, an illustration, you know, how would how would people feel if suddenly there was a uh, a national TV station or a national radio station that yeah. people could just upload any content mm -hmm. to yeah. that hadn't been policed in advance? Would that be considered acceptable? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, yeah. And I think to much, you know, if you're making money <laughs> um, through advertising, then it's you have a, a real responsibility okay. to ensure it's a safe environment for everybody. Okay. So let's let's jump change tax. Like another big news story: Twentieth um, Century Fox selling the bulk of its business to Disney. This seems to come out the blue. Uh, great to get your take on this, Leela. Does um, there's a lot been uh, mentioned about basically Rupert Murdoch retreating from from media to some extent. Does this have any impact on domestic TV operators, the likes of Channel 4, ITV? Does it mean the future of TV is all about scale? Um, and you know, what impact will it have in terms of programming and buying programs? Does it mean that Channel 4 and ITV have to team up with the likes of Apple and Netflix to buy content going forward? Well, firstly, I think it's important to say that you know this is a very positive thing. Disney are a big player; um, yeah. they have deep pockets yep. um, and incredible content. So, actually, I think this is a very positive thing for Sky. Um, in terms of you know what this means for the rest of the market, I think we've already seen a change. So, ITV um, have, a, have a deal with Amazon; they've um, they're sharing the rights to Vanity Fair, for example. Sure. Um, because I think. Yeah, sure. Competition, um, the likes of Netflix um, have kept all of the broadcasters on their toes and there's a bit, been a particular, um, not shift as such, but there's been, you know, a, um, more and more investment into drama as a genre. Yeah. Um, big, you know, high production budgets. Um, you know, now what people expect from, from that genre is, you know, Hollywood actors and directors. Yeah. Um, you know, you're kind of seeing almost mini Hollywood blockbusters and yeah, I think they're sure. enjoying that freedom of creating content over over 10 episodes rather than cramming it into a film um, and of course you know if you know you need to invest that sort of money into content yeah. then it helps if you can co-fund it um, so I think it's, it's a positive thing and you know TV has always been about scale really yeah. um, and, and that you know from an advertising perspective is is you know why people um, spend on the medium. It's one of the things you can kind of rely on with television to okay. kind of deliver that, that scale. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what other relationships develop. Yeah, okay, I guess it's a, a, a wait and see. And Mark, I'm going to put you out your comfort zone here and ask you um, uh, about Rupert Murdoch. Obviously, uh, he's still got Fox News, he's still got the newspapers, he's still got the Times and the Sun. Um, do you think, I mean, what do you, do you think that's a, seen as largely portrayed as a retreat, isn't it? Do you expect him to sell the rest of his assets or what do you make of the whole situation? Well, uh, I think it's interesting that uh, recently he has decided to invest in a radio business in wireless, yes. uh, which suggests to me that, you know, he's, he's not necessarily looking to uh, retreat too far too quickly. 
uh, and maybe exploring other areas where he can maybe expand into new markets, where he can get the dominance that he would want yes. to have. Um, you know, clearly the uh, the TV side of things was influenced by the uh, exceedingly high value placed on Netflix shares compared to 21st Century Fox. So you know they got more leverage in the market, uh, and that's one of the reasons he retreated. So you know maybe radio is one of those areas. Does it mean he's going to yeah. invest in more radio? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, does it mean that he's looking for other media markets like radio that are still in uh, good health? Uh, that present him with a new opportunity, possibly. We'll see. Okay, well, if you do hear of any rumours about him buying any radio assets, please let me know. That'd be interesting. <laughs> okay, let's switch and talk about the BBC. Obviously, um, you obviously um, both compete against them. Maybe they're mostly uh, foe to um, the TV and radio, the commercial TV and radio companies, but maybe a bit of bit, bit friend too. Can you just talk a bit about the relationship you have with the um, the BBC? If we can start with um, Thinkbox. I mean, are, are the BBC largely... Um, as I said, they compete against the likes of ITV, but is there a positive to the relationship too? Absolutely. Um, we, we generally have nothing but positive things to say about the BBC. Um, firstly, you know, I think you can't underestimate them. Um, they were the first to create the iPlayer, um, which really moved the industry forward. Um, and in terms of their content, they create incredible documentaries with the likes of Planet Earth, yeah. um, incredible um, drama. And I think that's a really positive thing for the entire TV industry. It's it's healthy competition, and it keeps everyone on their toes. And I think they've set the bar. Yeah. And um, so yeah, for us, we see it's a very positive thing. And of course, you know, they keep viewers on you know traditional TV, if you like. We don't like to use the word traditional, but on traditional TV, um, they keep viewers. They they pull viewers in. Um, and, and therefore everybody benefits. Okay. I'd, I'd reflect that completely. You know, a <laughs> strong competition uh, makes you stronger and having the BBC in the UK ecology makes it uh, one of the strongest radio markets in the world and, and like with TV, they help develop, uh, they help audiences develop a radio habit, which is great news. And, uh, you know, that works for all of us within the market. And, and there are areas where we actually collaborate with them as well. You know, we're not just there to, to try and uh, impose sort of greater restrictions on them. I think there are opportunities where uh, there is opportunity for both BBC and commercial to work together for the greater good of radio. Uh, and partly we've seen that historically through uh, radio audience measurement, mm. uh, the digital radio uh, um, promotional uh, body within the UK, DRUK, uh, but more recently through Radio Player, which is... Yeah. Uh, a common interface for radio listening on connected devices. Started in the UK uh, six years ago, it's uh, as a desktop player, it's moved into mobile, uh, and now it's developing um, skills for the Amazon Echo and Google Home. Uh, and more interestingly, it's a model that is being adopted by other markets around the world. Okay. So it's currently in eight other markets with 15 in the pipeline. So yeah. that's a really interesting thing that started from a relatively small-scale sure. collaboration that has accelerated into something of, of international importance. But presumably you do have some issues with the BBC. I think Ofcom recently published the final BBC operating licence. I thought you had some, I thought I might be wrong, Radio Centre had some issues with public service commitments and things like that that dropped. Or? Yeah, I mean, but, uh, you know, of yeah. course uh, there, are, there are some issues about... Uh, whether they continue to provide the best value for listeners and, and indeed viewers, uh, and also ensuring that their impact on the wider market is, is minimal. Um, 
But Ofcom, it's a new regime with Ofcom, so I sure. think you know we've got to sit down, look at it, let it bed in, and see what comes out of it, and then we'll t- we'll take it from there. Okay, so let's get to the meat of this. Let's talk about Radio Centre, Radio Centre, and Thinkbox. Um, so, what's the biggest challenge in your organisations? Obviously, you've got various egos, various big plays. Is, is it keeping these egos in, in, in check? And what is you know at the moment? What's the what's the biggest challenge you're facing, Lula? Well, actually, I'm very pleased to say, and this might be boring, um, but I'm very pleased to say that um, all of the broadcasters at the moment um, are working very, very well together. Um, in fact, you know, their um, relationship is probably the strongest it's ever been um, because they've recognised that the competition has now changed. Sure. So, you know, whilst they used to be in competition, of course, to a certain extent, they still are in competition with one another, but they recognise the, the big powerhouses, Google, Facebook, etc., um, and that's putting pressure on, on the industry. So there's more of a need for them to work collaboratively, and we've got a few initiatives actually coming up in sure. 2018. Um, we are hosting a big TV festival, um, so all of the broadcasters for the first time ever are working side by side, um, and that is going to be... Um, you know, alongside Thinkbox, yeah. but ultimately they're they're the driving force, and they're having to work. You know, having to work yeah. uh, nicely together, and that's I think that's really exciting, and we're seeing a lot of positives come out of that. Okay, and the same question to you, Mark. Uh, well, I'd say uh, I'd turn it around and say most of our challenges are external. I think uh, you know the RAB was the original media marketing body created 25 years ago, and so the commercial radio industry has has for a quarter of a century got uh, very used to working together on areas of common interest and value. Uh, so, you know, the, the challenge is sometimes finding those areas of compromise or opportunity, but on the whole, they're very happy to sit down in a room and work for the greater good of the industry. Okay, that's disappointing. I thought there was going to be some uh, controversial comments. And <laughs> hypothetically, what would happen if, uh, obviously, uh, Radio Centre, stake, key stakeholders are, are Global and, and uh, Bauer, if, if perchance you, one were to fall out and th- you know, threaten to actually pull out um, Radio Centre, how significant would that be and what would be the impact? Uh, you know, I think the, the, the most uh, challenging thing for us is ensuring that we stay relevant to their needs and the needs of their customers as well. Um, and if we can do that, then hopefully uh, they'll still see a value in us and we'll continue to deliver stuff for them that makes a difference uh, that they feel is worth investing in. Okay, just quickly, very quickly, Leela, just ask you, obviously, uh, Channel 4, new female uh, chief exec, Alex Mahone, same ITV, Carolyn McCall. How significant is this for the industry, do you think? Yeah, it's, it is significant. It's a fantastic thing for the industry. Television, you know, it's no secret, television has always been, you know, male-dominated. So this is a fantastic um, move forward, and we're all very, very excited, and they are both incredible with... Um, you know, very intimidating uh, CVs, <laughs> very, sure. very impressive individuals, and I've no doubt they will do an amazing job. So we're very excited. And how are we doing on that front on the radio industry? I'm trying to wrap my brains for female bosses in the commercial well, radio. I think if you have a look at the, uh, <laughs> the radio centre itself, uh, uh, that's true. Yes, executive that's very good. Our, our management team is very female okay. uh, dominated. So you know, diversity is an area of, of uh, consideration for both mm-hmm. TV and, and radio at the moment. And Across Ofcom, the whole industry, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. a real focus. But Ofcommerce are starting to get involved in this and, mm-hmm. uh, and the, uh, the commercial radio organisations themselves are now starting to look much more actively at diversity as an issue. Okay. 
Fantastic. Just before we go, guys, this is fantastic stuff. Can we just maybe talk about some of the big trends next year in radio and TV? What's, what are listeners to look out for? Anything particular you're excited about? Start with you, Mark, maybe? Uh, so, well, this year has been very interesting from a, a voice-activated device front, and we expect that to continue uh, next year. So it looks as though it's going to be the biggest gift of this Christmas, I think whether it's an an Echo or a Google Home. Uh, So look to those to become much more prevalent in UK households. Our research in September suggested around 14% household penetration uh, and estimated that it could be as high as 40% by the end of next year. Uh, And that's great news for radio because it's a big part of usage of those devices at the moment. 77% of users listen to radio. Sure. Uh, I think digital audio advertising is going to continue to grow uh, as audiences evolve and develop. And I think people acknowledge that with digital audio, there are no issues uh, with ad blocking or safety concerns as well. Um, So that's another area that's going to expand. Uh, And then I think one which may not be of interest at at a sort of general level, but actually is something that we look on with a great deal of pride. So following three years of lobbying by Radio Centre primarily, but working with other radio operators across Europe, uh, the EU uh, have finally agreed as part of their refit program to review, uh, I think it's section four of the consumer credit directive relating to terms and conditions in financial yeah. advertising. Um, so that's happening across next year. I think they're due to report in 2019. It may not sound like a lot, but actually that is one of the biggest tankers to ever turn around. So whatever we get out of that will be, uh, will be uh, a major success. And finally, yeah. uh, this year is going to be another year, a record year for us in terms of ad revenue, and okay. current forecast suggests that next year is going to grow again. So, okay, fantastic. Us. You should be doing the public relations for Radio Centre. <laughs> 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 and finally, Lily, what, what, in TV, what are we looking out for next year? How do I follow that? Well, um, so a couple of things I've mentioned or alluded to already. I think we're going to see a lot more collaboration from all of the broadcasters. Um, I, I mentioned earlier about the pendulum swinging back to broadcast media. And um, that's really due to the fact that, you know, marketing is in crisis. There's been a decline in its yeah. effectiveness. So there's real pressure to not just focus on activation in short term um, and make sure that broadcast media is in the mix to um, deliver scale and reach and, you know, build brands. It's a huge, important part um, of marketing that's been dismissed. Um, so we're already seeing a shift back yeah. to... Um, broadcast media and I think we'll see more of that, some more confidence um, in television as well. We're already, you know, the, the predictions for next year are looking pretty good. Um, I think there was a lot of uncertainty in the market last year and that's definitely picked up, which is fantastic. Okay. And um, and finally, addressability will certainly gather yeah. some pace um, with um, new deals in place um, and ITV with their new offerings. So it's a very exciting time. TV. And any TV shows to look out for next year? What should we watch? Oh, well, Vanity Fair, which I which I already okay. mentioned. Yeah. Um, there's a wonderful. I'm not sure how much of this I'm, I'm allowed to say actually, but okay. at the ITV upfronts, they showed this wonderful clip of a documentary with David Attenborough and the Queen, basically yes. talking about trees. And I don't know why it made me feel very yeah. emotional, but it was really beautiful because it was just two human beings with a with a sort of shared love of something. And, and just seeing the Queen, you know, with her sort of guard down, talking to obviously someone that she respects. And um, I can't wait for that. And I think that's coming in, um, yeah, Q1, I believe. But, yeah, you'll have to find out more from ITV. And I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to be uh, right, mentioning okay. that. But they showed it there up front, so yes, it should I'm be sure all right. <laughs>
Uh, okay, well, thank you very much, both uh, Mark and Luna. That's fantastic. And do stay tuned, because next we've got the interview with Stephen Woodford, so there's some um, nice nuggets in that. But thank you very much. Hello and welcome to the second part of the Media and Marketing Podcast, sponsored by the Public Relations Agency, MWW. And today we've got another cracker of a guest. I'm delighted to be joined by the Chief Executive of the Advertising Association, Stephen Woodford. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Stephen. Just for the listeners, can you just give me a potted history of your career today? And I'm sure most listeners will know what the Advertising Association does. But for those, can you just give a brief overview of its remit too? Thank you, John. Uh it's uh, quick, starting with a potted history of my career. Uh, I started out initially in marketing in 1980, uh, and then I went into advertising. I've worked in a number of agency groups, some independent agencies. I've sort of been, I think, in all the colours and all the sizes in a sense of, uh, of agencies. Uh, and a year ago, I joined the Advertising Association, uh, which is here to uh, promote the role, rights, and responsibilities of advertising to the public, uh, to political audiences and to the wider society. So we're, we're here really to think about all of advertising uh, and in particular represent the whole section of the business. So it's not just uh, the agencies or the advertisers, yeah. but it's also the commercial media owners and then the whole supply chain that, that works across that industry, so the production companies, the market research and so on. Okay, so you've been in the role just over a year and it's uh, I guess it's uh, well, it is a, a critical time for the advertising industry. So you've recently launched the uh, the Great Advert for Britain campaign. So this was the Advertising Association's uh, first major in, uh, intervention in the Brexit debate, and this campaign is celebrating foreign workers and their overall contribution to the creative industries, and saying that this is under threat from uh, Brexit. So you. What you want, the Advertising Association, wants a continuation of freedom of movement between the UK and the EU. Well, we, the reason we've done this campaign now is because uh, we're reflecting what our members want. Yeah. Uh, our members are very keen that uh, we keep as near to free movement as possible mm -hmm. because the UK industry has done exceptionally well over the years by being a magnet to the brightest and best, not just from the EU, but from all around the world. Sure. Uh, and as we look into the future and we think about Brexit and we think about the sort of headwinds that we're going to face, I don't think anybody thinks life is going to get any easier. Our industry can survive and thrive and continue to do well and perhaps to even do any even better on a global uh, basis if we continue to attract the brightest and best from around the world to work here. So that's the reason why we focused on that campaign it, and it's because, of, it's because of our members, uh, one of their major worries about Brexit. Okay, so why, did, why, why have you done it now? Why didn't you do it? Did you intervene or was there any... Uh, campaign or anything before the actual vote or not? Or? Uh, not certainly not before the vote because we're not a political organisation. We wouldn't have, right. we wouldn't have taken a, a stance on on, on Brexit. Uh, I think it's fair to say our industry as a whole, like a lot of the creative industries, was pretty much for remaining mm. uh, because our industry's done very well from it. Um, so regardless of that, you know, we're leaving. We're not looking to refight the referendum in any way. But what we're looking to do is put across as loudly and as clearly as possible what we need as an industry in order to be successful and to continue to thrive in the future. Okay, and I mean, what do you think the likelihood, I mean, I guess you don't have any inside information on this, but I mean, do you think there will be a, a soft Brexit? I mean, the noises from the government seem to be indicating that for the transition period, maybe there will be a continuation of freedom of movement, but afterwards, um, you know, there could well be a hard Brexit. So. Well, I, I think, I, I can't comment whether we'll have a soft, hard, smooth yeah. or whatever Brexit. I mean, there's all sorts of adjectives flying around. I do think from the conversations that we've been having with 
government, with civil servants, with politicians, uh, they are listening to the needs of industry. They're not just our industry, but across the whole of industry. They are listening to, to what, uh, what industry wants in order to carry on being successful. Uh, and certainly I've not heard anybody uh, say that we want to make life more difficult for, for British industry uh, post-Brexit. So, um, but we will see. You know, there's a white paper due out any day. Uh, Brandon Lewis, who's the um, immigration minister at the Home Office, was on uh, the political radio shows and TV shows at the weekend. Uh, talking about uh, the forthcoming white paper. The white paper will bring back into UK law the ability to set our own mm. migration policy. But actually what he stresses, and, and I've been in meetings with him as well, is that they're going to listen to best advice, and they're going to listen to best advice through something called the Migration Advisory Committee. Okay. Migration Advisory Committee is going to report back on what Britain's post-Brexit EU migration policy should be in order to serve the needs particularly of industry and to ensure that our economy... Mm thrives um, and they'll be led by that we've given evidence uh, to that that committee um, and they're due to report back next September I think the point you make about transition is a really important one everybody now is accepting that uh, we're going to have a transition deal that's going to be the next stage of the negotiations so in effect what happens uh, you know we, we're finally in effect going to be in that post brexit situation whatever the technicalities of when we leave uh, post I think it's going to be about April 2021. So there's going to be, obviously, we leave officially uh, the end of March 2019. Then there's everybody's expecting there to be a two-year transition. So it's actually 2021. So mm. industry's got three years, really, to get uh, to get itself into position. And I think, again, from what we're hearing, uh, and certainly you know, the experience of the last couple of weeks will show, is that these things get done right at the very, lo- at the very yeah. wire. Uh, and because migration is such a, uh, a big issue... Both politically, uh, but also for for, for industry and uh, the economy, um, we can imagine debate on this going on for, for many months and maybe years ahead. But you seem quite optimistic that there will be something close to a, a continuation of the status quo. Then, and can you just talk about if if hypothetically if there is a, a tough immigration controls afterwards, why will it, why are you so sure, or why will it have a detrimental effect on the advertising industry? Well, if we do, let, let's, let's, let's take a worst case where we have a really tough, restrictive immigration policy, uh, both from the EU and the rest of the world, that makes it much harder for British firms to attract and keep the best world talent. Uh, those people will go elsewhere. They'll go to, the, there are plenty of countries that want that sort of talent. There's plenty of countries that would love to have a share of the success that the UK has had in our industry. So they'll go somewhere else. It won't be a disaster overnight. It will just be a gradual, slow attrition of, of, of work going elsewhere. So... We have an, a, an advertising industry that punches well above its weight, both creatively, both in, in terms of technology, in terms of uh, the sophistication of the market. And that's in part because we're a large, very consumer-oriented economy in terms of the domestic economy, but we also uh, punch above our weight in terms of exports. We are, per capita, the number one exporter of advertising. So we have a much bigger advertising sector than we would otherwise have just to serve the domestic market. So if we had a very tough uh, migration policy that meant that it was difficult to attract that talent. Uh, they would go elsewhere. There would be other cities in Europe that mm. would, I think, set up as hubs. Uh, and we would lose business over the medium term. So I think you mentioned, we'll go on to talk about your appearance in front of the House of Lords. I think you mentioned in that you referenced Amsterdam and Berlin, who were uh, around uncertainty, were, were looking to attract uh, talent. Um, I mean, you alluded to it there. C- could you seriously envisage some of the, the big creative agencies, people like Wyden and Kennedy, BBH, Mother, could you, if there is a hard Brexit, could you envisage them actually leaving the UK? 
Well, one in Kennedy, you know, their lead office in Europe is is in Amsterdam already. That's good. I think Amsterdam is is arguably the biggest threat because it is, uh, you know, they, they promote themselves very much as the as the you know the the alternative hub for creative industries where English is pretty much a first language, which is a very civilized place to work. Already a very good creative community there, um, so it's very attractive. Um, and the government will offer thirty percent of your salary tax free if you're the right skills that, that that are identified as ones that they want to attract. So they're doing everything they can. They set up pretty quickly mm. post Brexit to start marketing Amsterdam uh, as uh, as an alternative hub uh, to the UK and to London in particular uh, for creative industries. So I think they they are they clearly see a big opportunity there, and they will undoubtedly have some success in that. Already, there's a lot of very good agencies in Amsterdam. I, I think you would probably argue that between Paris, Berlin, and Amsterdam, there are there are three very good rival cities that would love to take business away from the UK. Mm. So, and you do think some of those big agencies could actually move then, do you, or not? Well, a lot of the big agencies have already got offices there yeah. anyway. So, very easy for them. If if let's let's say for example you're a big multinational mm-hmm. and you find it hard to attract the international talent, that means that you can run your global or, or EMEA business from London. Mm. Quite easy to set up in Berlin or set up in Paris or set up in Amsterdam, uh, and those people will go there mm. uh, because they're 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 relatively transient. Now I think you know they, they go where the work is. If we don't have the work, they will go elsewhere, and the business will follow. So it's quite it, it, it's it, it, this is not rocket science in a sense. Is you know the, by attracting the talent, we get the work. If we can't attract the talent, the work will go to where it, the talent mm. lives. I think you made the point before. If the creative agencies go then um, other related industries could follow suit then. Yeah. So design industries, tech industries, all those that are related, there could, could be a, you know, a big... I think, I think and, and, and we see that you know, if, if it's a tough immigration policy for advertising, it will also be a tough immigration policy for tech companies, for design, for architect, for all the different things that do all, all make the UK uh, such a vibrant hub for creative, uh, for creative industries. So... Um, and, and we do benefit from, in effect, this sort of overlay. You know, we have the world's best production companies here. We have the world's best visual effects companies here. Sure. We have the world's best ad agencies, market research, and so on and so forth. They're all they're all here because they are interdependent and they attract the talent that works between them. They attract the talent because they know that they can get their best work done here. And I think we've got an incredibly strong lead when you look at inward investment into into technology, into creativity, into um, all of the sort of uh, you know, fintech and all the other things. Mm. The UK does way better than the rest of Europe. Often it's, there's more in the UK than the next two or three countries combined, which means if you're one of those countries, you only need to take a small share of that to have a big impact in your own market. So it's worth your while uh, you know, attracting an ad agency or a design company or a, uh, a tech company or a broadcaster into your market because other business will follow. Okay. Now, another area critical to industry is the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. So, broadly speaking, you're pushing to ensure that the, uh, the three flow of data across borders post-Brexit is maintained. Can you just explain why that is so important? It's incredibly important that we have data equivalents uh, with the EU, not just as we leave, but as uh, going into the, into the future, because most companies will trade internationally, will move data internationally. So, GDPR is something that that the industry here has done a lot of work on. Uh, the British government, in terms of it, uh, the formation of the policy, has been very heavily involved. Uh, the information commissioner here uh, will be one of the key um, voices in that. In fact, we're lobbying to make sure that post-Brexit, we still have a voice around that table. So we wrote to various ministers last week okay. to ask them to ensure that our 
information commissioner uh, does sit at the top table uh, in the future because when we leave in effect we'll be taking those you know the, 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 the we'll be taking those laws into British law so we'll have equivalents but there'll be things that might come down the line after we leave either amendments to that provision or the privacy directive that will add further uh, potential restrictions uh, and potential complications to data we you know we, we can't get out of line with these things we have to maintain equivalence otherwise firms would have to operate two sets of uh, yeah, data processing true. um and i think that's incredibly difficult for them to do you know you mm. don't want, and you don't want the accidental mm. uh, breaking of the uh, of any of these rules because the, the the penalties are extremely high so this is a really serious issue we do have equivalence but we need to ensure that we continue to have an equivalence and that we continue to have a voice okay now before i alluded to your appearance in the uh, house of lords um, so the inquiries into the future of advertising sector ahead of Brexit. I'm not. Can you just uh, clarify what's going to be the what's the reason for this and what's going to happen? What's going to be the conclusion of it? There's not going to be any. Um, there's going to be a re report at the end of it. I'm not quite. There's, there's going to be. So the House of Lords Communications Committee um, have decided to look at Brexit uh, and its impact on the creative industries, and they've particularly chosen to look at advertising, if you like, as the the lens through which to look at the impacts of Brexit. Yeah. So they've got two primary uh, areas of, of inquiry. It's been about talent and about all the issues that we've already been talking about, what the migration policy mm. should be post-Brexit, because they understand that, that talent is, is, is key in our industry, uh, like many others. And they're also um, more recently been looking more at the impacts of uh, the, the changes in the advertising landscape, particularly mm -hmm. by digital technology. Okay. And they will produce a report at the end of that uh, that will you know, have and influence quite precisely how it influences government policy. Uh, we'll wait and see, but it's a, it's a very influential committee. Okay, so one of the things that you are calling for is tax credits for SMEs. So is this a, a change in tax? Because previously, Advertising Association has been sort of detached from government intervention to a certain extent, hasn't it? There's been yeah, alcohol uh, and things like that. Is that yes. a, no, you're, no. you're asking for, now you're asking for help, are you? <laughs> well, we, we, I, I, rather than asking for help, I, we see a big opportunity. So if you think, so we, we, the UK hasn't had an industrial strategy really for, for two or three decades probably. So what the government have, uh, have done in terms of asking for ideas from industry is they realise that, that it's going to be more difficult and we need to rethink uh, how our economy works uh, post-Brexit and we looked at their request for ideas which came out from the Green Paper in, in February this year about what can advertising do, what can advertising do to particularly to get growth outside of London and the South East which you know in, mm -hmm. in, in productivity terms, in GDP terms are amongst the most successful parts of Europe. Um, so particularly to look at what uh, our industry could do to help growth in the regions and nations outside London and the South East. Yeah. Uh, and we, one of the ideas we got to was to look at what advertising can do to help SMEs grow more quickly. Sure. We've done lots of research amongst SMEs to look at their usage of advertising. We found that there are significant barriers to them advertising. And we think if we can reduce those barriers and get them to advertise better and earlier in their life stage and therefore grow their sales more quickly, that would be one of the best impacts that we could have on jobs and growth outside London and the South East. Okay. And is there any other areas you're looking for government assistance at all apart from that? Uh, we're also working with Department of International Trade in particular to promote the UK as a global hub for advertising. So yeah. again, you know, the UK has grown sort of organically and become that uh, without any government intervention. In intervention. It's, it's become it because of time zones, it's become an English language because the talent that's here and this sort of virtuous circle that we've probably been in for the last 20 or 30 years. 
Um, rather than just take that for granted that that's going to continue post-Brexit, we're actually partnering with the Department of International Trade to promote as part of the Britain is Great campaign, so mm -hmm. we'll have an Advertising is Great campaign next year okay. to promote the UK as a place where, if you're a big global advertiser, you should come and locate your uh, advertising business because you'll get the best work. Okay. So you mentioned talent there that has been crucial to the inquiry. So I guess to a lot of outside people, a perception, for better or worse, is that thinking about um, creative agencies, that it's dominated by posh, middle-class white people. Is that, do you think that's still a perception? Or do you think that's changed? I'm sure you can probably point to some figures which... I think it's, I think, I think the percep undoubtedly the perception uh, is probably still there. I think that's changing... Uh, that has changed and is changing at, at an accelerating rate. I think it's probably one of the industry issues that is most concerning at the moment is diversity in, at, at every level, both diversity in terms of social class, diversity in terms of sex, diversity in terms of sexual orientation, diversity in terms of disability. Um, and I think these have been issues that have been around for, for some years, but I would, my, my sense is, if you're in, in this role now, seeing all of the things that are happening across the industry, that that is a, a, an accelerating process. I think coming back again to thinking about Brexit and what are the underlying mm. reasons for Brexit, you know, we need to do better at getting uh, a more diverse part of the UK population into, into our industry, making it easier and more attractive for people sure. out, uh, outside those traditional backgrounds, if you like, uh, to get into the industry. So there's a huge amount of work and there's numerous initiatives that, that are going on to do that. Um, and okay. that's something we'll have to do better in the future. Okay, I think the IPA, they've got that uh, We Will Make It Leap initiative, so they're aiming for 40% female representation in senior positions by 2020, 13% BAME representation in senior positions by 2020. Are those going to be achieved, those, do you think? I think they will, yeah. I think it's good progress. I think I think IPA in particular deserve huge credit for all the work they've done. Uh, I think it was um, under Tom Knox's presidency, uh, they particularly focused on, on BAME representation, and that's now reported in the campaign uh, school reports. So, yeah, yeah it, it's like a lot of these things. If you start to measure something, you start to see real progress against it. So we're measuring it for the first time in agencies and reporting on it. I think big uh, big companies have, uh, are just as aware of this as, as, as our big agencies. So um, all across the industry, I think we see uh, huge efforts to improve the diversity and, and uh, broad base, if you like, of talent uh, in, in our industry. Okay, and just, um, I've asked a few guests about this, it's, it's a, a topic of uh, that's been of interest, is, is, well, is sexual harassment, are you, um, some of the um, some of the agency groups have um, made sort of um, uh, PR moves on the back of it, saying they're undertaking certain courses in um, to train about sexual harassment, things like that, do you think the, what's your take on what the reaction from the industry has been? Should they, have, should they have done more? Should they have done less? Or well, it's. I, th I think it's a. Uh, in a way, the, the the way that this has unfolded this year has been one of the. Uh, um, I think one of the, probably one of the things that will have the, the long the longest mm. uh, and most sort of seismic changes is actually you know when you think about how you know how the Me Too hashtag and the the whole thing started with with the Harvey Weinstein thing and has now spread across politics and industry. Uh, certainly, there are. Uh, undoubtedly issues in our industry like every other industry and I think um, you know we, we will see increasing efforts to tackle them I think particularly on salute uh, the, the efforts that Wackle are, are doing to raise raise awareness around this uh, and you know build industry consensus around this I think you know that the sort of harassment that's been reported in the media mm -hmm. uh, is unacceptable 
um, and we need to be in an industry that has a sort of zero tolerance view of those things. And I think everybody, you know, it's the sort of flip side of, of aiming for, uh, you know, the best representation of women across senior positions. Um, you know, we, we, we cannot have an environment where sexual harassment is, you know, is either a blind eye turned to it or it's just seen as something that, you know, mm. is a rites of passage or something that, that is somehow condoned. Uh, I think I think the social climate and the political climate has just changed completely against that, and that is a very very good thing. And you don't think the advertising industry has a particular problem with it? I mean, you've obviously held several high-profile jobs in the industry over the years. Have you, have you, has, has it, have you noticed it's been a particular problem, or it's got worse, or has improved, or? I can't. I, I can't. I can't say. So my 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 perception. Uh, uh, Maybe completely at odds with the perception, of, say, of a, mm. of a 25-year-old uh, woman working in, in an agency. Um, I went to a recent Wackle event, which was sort of off the record, but I think that. that would, so I'm not going to go into the details of what was revealed there, but um, it seemed from the pe- what people were saying at that meeting that that these issues are just as prevalent as they always were. So you know, there are there are there, there's a there's a major job to be done. Right. Okay. Um, okay. That, that's great. Just before, just a couple of uh, light-hearted questions. Well, I'll say light-hearted. Light-hearted. I'm sure listeners be interested in what your um, uh, your day-to-day. I mean, what can you, for example, what have you got on this week? I guess maybe this week's a bad example because in the run-up to Christmas. But um, I mean, do you get out and about visiting agencies? Uh, visiting... I'm out and about every day. Uh, I <laughs> one way of looking at it is uh, I look at my mileage every month. I, I go, go to meetings on Boris bikes because I'm constantly out and about during the day, and I. Last month I did 140 miles on Boris bikes in central London, so uh, I'm probably out two or three times a day visiting members, uh, going to meetings and so on. So this is a very outward-facing job. Uh, so I'm constantly trundling on my bike from meeting to meeting. We have a broad sort of cross-section of members, obviously from from media, uh, the advertisers and agencies and production companies and so on. Um, and we also have a lot of political engagement. So we're based mm. in Westminster because we're you know we we have a, probably a civil servant meeting. Or a political meeting certainly every week we've got civil servants from three departments coming in this afternoon to talk about uh, free trade agreements um, and you know government in, is beginning to turn its eyes and attention yeah. towards what sort of free trade agreements yeah. we are going to seek to strike and then what would advertising want as part of those free trade agreements so that's that's a classic example of the sort of work that we do okay and finally just a slight change of tact in terms of uh, creativity are we at a high point at the moment or is it a low point um, uh, I think I think creativity is uh, so. We, I'm thinking about this year and the things that stand out for me. Uh, probably the, the my ad of the year would be the phenomenal Audi sending the clowns ad, yes. which I just thought was when you see, sometimes you see an ad that absolutely stops you in it, in your tracks right. uh, and just sums up uh, so much about the brand, so much about the the sort of current, current zeitgeist, that sort of sense of being surrounded by idiot drivers on the road, and I think it was just yeah. beautifully, brilliantly shot. It's lovely to see a fantastic big production values, glorious two-minute version that I think I probably saw on YouTube and then seeing it on air as well and seeing it in cinema. Absolutely fantastic. So when you see an ad like that, you realise that that, that uh, at its best, this industry can achieve amazing things. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, that's great. And just uh, stay tuned because coming up, we have an interview, a roundtable interview with Newsworks, Thinkbox, and Radio Centre. Thank you very much. Right.